Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Ingenium Schools podcast. This is podcast 016. My name is Jake Rogers, and I'm currently the Chief Academic Officer here at Ingenium Schools. Today's podcast is part two in a two-part series. It's a follow-up from the January 5th All Ingenium PD session on intrinsic motivation and behavior. Let's pick up where we left off in our last podcast. Okay, let's jump over to a different category. Uh, This category of sticky notes got grouped into um, an affinity called strategies and tools. So the first one was when a student gets upset, what is the best way to approach them? Um, I would say the best way, the best thing to do would be to not approach them. Um, But this kind of goes back to something I said earlier about having a planned response. So you know that there are going to be times that students get upset in your class. So then the question becomes, as a school or as a teacher or as a team, what is our planned response for when a student gets upset? So one of the things that I, I like to use was a, like a think time or a reset process in the classroom that either the student could self-elect to go there to calm down or as a teacher you could you know ask them to go there to calm down and um, the the key to that is making sure that it's not something that's looked at as punitive and which becomes an extrinsic motivator so the idea is that we look at this as if i'm a teacher we look at this as a class as a support because we all get upset sometimes we all get frustrated And so we need some strategies and tools to help us calm down. So you teach the process to every kid in your class. You don't just do it to the kids who have the most consistently challenging behaviors. And then you can collect some data on that and figure out, okay, who's struggling the most with, um, or who's getting getting upset or frustrated most often and, and most needing that reset or think time process in my classroom. And then that's a clue that you may have a student that, um, for whom that, that that process isn't exactly working and you might need to work with them on something different. Okay, the next question in there is, how do you transition from extrinsic to intrinsic? So I would go back to thinking about those five areas of um, the, the five components that we look at for creating an intrinsically motivating environment, which are control, challenge, cooperation, meaning, and support. I sometimes forget all those, so I always think CCCMS, so control, challenge, cooperation, meaning, and support. Um, I would I would sit down and and look at all of the things that I do throughout the day, or maybe even hone in on a certain problem area. Like maybe you feel like math is really challenging time of the day, or the afternoon is really difficult. Whatever it is, sit down and start you know, with your team or by yourself, asking yourself, how much control do kids have in this time of the day or in this um, subject area? Um, Are there kids for whom the challenge is not quite optimal? Do the kids have opportunities to cooperate and work together on meaningful work? And what supports could be in place that maybe are not in place? And so 
Um, you want to kind of keep those things in balance, right? Because if you give kids all the autonomy in the world, but you don't provide them any support, it's going to flop. If um, the work is optimally challenging, but they never get op opportunities to cooperate, or they don't understand why they're doing it, they have no meaning. It, you know, you're gonna, you may see um, kids struggle with behavior. So, to start that transition from an extrinsic to intrinsic environment, I would just simply analyze my classroom processes against those five components of an intrinsically motivating environment. All right, another question, this is a great one. Should teachers devote the first couple days of the semester to finding out all students' intrinsic trigger? So yes, that's a, that's a great idea. Um, what you're really talking about is getting at meaning, that one of, those one of the five components of an intrinsically motivating environment. That's a great idea, um, something you know, I would encourage you to figure out how can you do that all along the way? Because you know, sometimes throughout the year, things that are meaningful change for kids. Um, but the more you know about that, the more you can look for common cause things that are meaningful to your class and um, work with them to develop meaningful learning experiences. And then also, you know, if you have that jotted down somewhere, or if you're better at me than remembering things, you remember um, individual students and what, what's meaningful to them. When students have challenging behavior, whether it's something that's consistent or it's kind of a one-off type behavior, um, your conversation with them can be much more informed and you can help them um, help them change their behavior by tapping into what's meaningful. So um, getting them to think about the connection between choosing these types of behaviors that are more pro-social and adaptive and how that connects to what's meaningful to them. All right, another question in the strategies and tools category here. How do you motivate apathetic students? So I want to be careful about how I respond to this question. Um, but in general, when we label students, when we label anybody, it takes the ownership away from us and it puts it on them, which also takes the control away from us and puts it out there. And all we have left to do is complain and be frustrated that they're not doing something different. So I would caution you from labeling students as apathetic, unmotivated, um, uh, anything like that, because um, you end up sitting back and, and saying that the problem lies with them. At Ingenium, one of the things we're about is looking at the system and looking at systemic causes for things. So if we have, you know, uh, the, this, the sticky note says, how do you motivate apathetic students, i.e. eighth graders? So, um, you know, if we're talking about a large group of eighth graders that we're deeming apathetic, then we probably want to look at our system and say, what in our system is producing um, apathetic eighth grade students? And one of the things you have to remember is that you're not the only contributing factor. Um, students may have been a part of systems for years that have very little student control. The challenge was not optimal. They didn't get lots of opportunities to cooperate with other students. They didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing, so they had very little meaning for it. And when they needed it, the support may not have been there. So they've, by eighth grade, they may have come to realize that, you know, 
this is just the way it is and there's not a whole lot I can do about it, so why try? So what we want to do instead is think about what in my system, the way I'm managing my school, the way I'm managing my classroom, is resulting in students that appear bored or unmotivated or apathetic? Do they have enough control? Do they have enough support to, um, uh, to, to back up the control? Is it optimally challenging? You know, do they get opportunities to work together? So the more you work on the system, you're going to see a different result. If you continue to operate the system the way that you're doing, you're going to continue to think and see or think that students are apathetic. Um, so I'd really encourage you to um, think about the, the thing I mentioned earlier about sitting down and analyzing my classroom processes and structures and how much control, challenge, cooperation, meaning, and support do I have embedded in those. And also remember that if you want the situation to change, you need to have control over that. And so um, reframing that to um, how do we help students with um, uh, consistently challenging behaviors? Or how do we help students who don't seem interested in the work that, um, that we're doing together or the learning that we're engaging in? And I would also encourage you to, to um, work with your principal or other staff or call uh, me or Mr. Langford or Ms. Hamilton and talk about what tools could you use with kids to help them tell you um, what would be more meaningful to them or um, where would they like to have more control or where do they need more support, et cetera. Okay, uh, another one, this is fairly similar, but I don't want anybody to feel like um, questions weren't answered. So one. One was, what are strategies to create behavioral intrinsic motivators in the first place? Um, and I just go back to those five components and um, be thinking about how can, I, how can I move along the spectrum of from teacher control to student control? How can I set up processes so that students can find, um, so that the work is, is optimally challenging? And are there even just one, one more opportunity than I normally have for kids to talk to each other or cooperate or collaborate on a project. Um, or, you know, before I start a new learning experience, or maybe I'm not quite into learning experiences yet, but it's just a new assignment, or we're about to start uh, reading. And typically I've seen that, you know, kids are not as engaged or there's more challenging behaviors during that time. Maybe it's just stopping and having a conversation about why do we read or having the kids do a reflection why do you read or um, you know what what gets in your way of enjoying reading looking at what some of the barriers are so um, same thing just keep thinking about how do we incorporate those five things into my classroom practice all right the next category I'm going to kind of lump together it's about uh, it's called parents and community, and there's a few uh, questions and concerns in there, but they're all about how do we explain this stuff to parents? Um, and I, I know what you're talking about. Um, I remember many times having to talk to parents as a teacher and as a principal um, who wanted a pound of flesh every time something was done to their child and trying to explain to them, you know, the approach that we take. So couple things uh, you know this is a 
process. So it's a learning process for, for all of us to move away from thinking about changing behavior through extrinsic motivators to creating intrinsically motivating environments. And it's also a process for developing a system-wide approach. And this stuff doesn't happen overnight, as I mentioned at the um, session in early January. So it takes time. So first thing I would say is give yourself uh, or cut yourself some slack. You don't have to have this stuff totally perfectly down. Um, and I know it can be frustrating when somebody confronts you with a question and you don't feel like you have a good answer right there on the spot. So a couple suggestions. Um, in the moment, if that happens and you feel like you're stuck and you can't really explain what we're doing and why we're doing it, there's nothing wrong with saying to that parent something like, hey, you know, we're, we're kind of in a transition stage for how we're working with kids when they exhibit these types of behaviors. And... I would like, I think it would be better if, if we sat down and talked with my principal or somebody else and together we could kind of explain our thinking and how we're going about this and how it really helps both students or all the students involved in this situation. So that's one thing you can do. Don't, you don't have to feel like you need to have an answer right there on the spot. Um, the other thing that w we're working on is coming up with a, uh, like a one-page document that gives an overview of our philosophy around working with kids with challenging behaviors and creating intrinsically motivating environments. And so once that's done, you'll be able to refer to that. And um, my hope would be that it's something that you could even hand to parents and um, have them read through. And it can be kind of a um, uh, grounds for a discussion. So the other category, the last category was um, support for students, I'm sorry, not the last category, second to last, but support for students and accountability. So one of the questions I answered already, which was how does, in quotes, it depends, set students up for success in the long run, and we talked a little bit about how life is contextual. Um, another one was how can we keep students accountable for their behavior with intrinsic motivation? And I'll just kind of refer back to what I talked about earlier about how this really does hold students more accountable. When, when we determine punishments and rewards, it ignores reasons for the behaviors that we're seeing, and we take ownership and control over it, as opposed to sitting down with the student and main, helping them maintain control over whatever their actions were, their behavior was, and working with them to figure out how they're going to make things right or solve those um, the problems that arose. The other question was, how do you get younger students to be intrinsically motivated and see the bigger picture rather than immediate rewards and desires? Um, I, I personally have found that in general, younger students um, have been less demotivated by the system. So in some ways, they're easier to work with because they're excited about everything. Um, but really, it goes back to something I talked about earlier in the podcast, is figuring out what's meaningful to them and trying to connect that to whatever it is that they're working on or the beha desired behaviors. Um, but that, again, takes time. Okay, the last one was support for teachers and accountability. This is the last category. Um, 
So how do you properly speak to younger students when they ignore you? I know that can be really frustrating, um, whether it's a younger student or an older student or an adult. <laughs> um, but uh, you sometimes you may have to lose the battle so you can win the war. Um, sometimes you just have to let things go. Um, if a student is consistently ignoring you, then that's another issue. Um, you might want to, again, go back and try to figure out, you know, what's what's going on? What's the context in this situation where the student is ignoring me? Is it um, whenever I approach them to talk about a problem? Is it um, is it during a particular time of the day, during a particular subject, when there's a certain expectation placed on them? And then just try to do some digging and thinking about why might they be ignoring you? And then um, trying to solve the problem and work with them right in the moment when they're ignoring you is probably not going to work because they're already escalated and ignoring you is, a, is the only coping strategy that they have. And so the best time to help them solve that problem is when they're not having that problem and their, their mind is freed up to think and learn. Uh, another question, what should support look like for teachers from administration and support staff? Um, again, this goes back to a whole system-wide approach. So when we have common processes and operational definitions for certain behaviors and things that we do commonly across all grade levels and we're using common data systems, then it's really easy to say, hey, when these things start to happen or when we notice these behaviors and or I've tried these things and they're not working, our next step is to go to the SST or to go to the dean or to go to the principal and do some um, brainstorming with them. But the short answer would be support from administration and support staff for teachers should be just that. It shouldn't be taking ownership over the student because like we said, the number one relationship is between the student and the teacher. So the best thing that administrators and support staff can do is to um, remove barriers to you working with that student and to um, help facilitate conversations and um, problem-solving efforts with that student. Because the second you step out, you're abdicating your responsibility and your ownership of that to whatever support staff or administration person um, that you hand that person off to. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times where a student needs to leave the classroom because it's not safe or it's consistently getting in the way of their learning and everybody else's learning. Um, but in the long run, we really need to be figuring out how do we support teachers best by facilitating that problem solving or helping you remove barriers to doing the problem solving with the student. Another question, how do we as teachers get the strength to keep going when it seems like there is no growth? That's a great question. Um, this is hard stuff. Um, don't do it alone. you got to have uh, team members or other staff that you can talk to, principals, whoever. Um, and then the second thing is, I would really, if you have a student that's that's really been challenging for you, you have to think about how could I know if this is getting better? So sometimes we think that the problem isn't getting better because the process is slow. But if we can figure out a way to track that information, or I'm sorry, track that behavior to see incremental changes, that's really motivating. And it's also motivating when we notice that it doesn't work 
because we know that what we're doing isn't working. So we can try something different and it helps us know to try something different sooner. Um, but that I've always found that by tracking whatever I'm doing or whatever behaviors we're trying to work on, um, that, that helps me keep going. All right, there's a couple other questions in this one that are repeats, so um, I'm just going to go to the last one that's unique. And it's, I have seen entire classrooms receiving consequences due to the behavior of one student, such as lining up again for recess, not getting to see a movie, etc., run extra laps. I think there may be a teacher need to do this, not sure what it might be, but how to meet that need so you can do a more effective approach with, uh, in quotes, special cause students. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know about what the need is. Um, my experience has been in, you know, for myself and talking with other teachers that all, any teacher, basically, if you're a teacher, you understand that sometimes kids can be really challenging to work with um, and exhibit challenging behaviors. Um, but my experience is it's, you've run out of tools. So we're not sure what to do next, and so we're frustrating, and so we fall back on those things that we either learned in our teaching program or that were done to us because it's what we know. Um, and there's nothing more frustrating than, than getting into a situation and you don't have the right tool and you don't even know if that tool exists. So I guess, I don't know, my only recommendation would be that we just have compassion always and empathize with those teachers, administrators, anybody that's going through something where they're, they've run out of tools and um, that we turn to others for support. So we, we try to, f to learn if there are new tools um, that we don't know about. Um, but my experience has been that, you know, if you have faith that there's a tool out there and you just don't know what it is yet that, and that you're going to find it if you talk to enough people, um, you'll, you'll get there. So just know that you can always go to your principal. You can reach out to people here at the home office, me, Mr. Langford, um, anybody, and we're happy to um, help you brainstorm some new ways of working through those challenges. for listening to today's podcast. That wraps up a two-part series on the follow-up from the January 5th professional development session on intrinsic motivation and behavior. This has been another Ingenium Schools podcast. Mm -hmm.